Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we're going to be discussing the original Akbar's Chamber, the Ibadat Khana, or the House of Worship, established in 1575 by the Mughal Emperor Akbar as a place to discuss religious truth, and indeed the competing or perhaps complementary religious truths of all of the religions of his empire, as well as the Christian religion of Europe. Its goal, in the words of Akbar's Grand Vizier and propagandist Abul Fazl, was to establish a feast of truth. The Emperor Akbar began his religious conferences, or majalis, as they were called in Persian, in the year 1570. And it was five years later that he had the special building, the Ibadat Khana, built for these meetings at his new capital of Fatipur Sikri in North India. We're fortunate that his Grand Vizier, Abul Fazl, recorded Akbar's intentions in founding the Ibadat Khana in the Akbar Nama, the history of Akbar, that Abul Fazl wrote. According to the Akbar Nama, in the Ibadat Khana, the emperor then spoke through his auspicious tongue the following words. I have organized this assembly for this purpose only, that the facts of every religion, whether Hindu or Muslim, be brought out into the open. The closed hearts of our religious leaders and scholars should be opened so that the Muslims should come to know who they are, as they themselves are unaware of their own religion. They, the Muslims, only think of Muslims as being those who recite the Kalama, the testament of faith, who consume meat and who perform formal worship. But they should know that Muslims are those who wage war on their self, who undertake jihad bil nafs, and who control their desires and temper, and who surrender themselves to the rule of law. Well, as Akbar's statement suggests, Though perhaps political as well as religious and spiritual motivations, his founding of the Ibadat Khana. Nonetheless, we do know from other sources that many different peoples did indeed come to his conferences, his majalis, at the Ibadat Khana in Fatipur Shukri, and indeed afterwards in his subsequent capital of Lahore. Some of those different groups who came were Sufi Muslims, Sunni and indeed Shis as well. Hindus of various kinds, Brahmins, Jatis, as well as Jain monks. Jews, Zoroastrians or Parsis who lived also in Akbar's new dominions in Gujarat. And last but by no means least, the European Christians and particularly Jesuits who came to debate with the emperor and indeed to attempt to convert him. There's a famous picture that survives of the Ibadat Khana. It's now in the Chester Beatty Library in Dublin, but fortunately it's also on the Wikipedia page for the Ibadat Khana online. It shows two 
men dressed in black, two Jesuit priests sitting in a circle of the other figures, perhaps more typically Persianate and Indic-looking, who sit before the emperor in this deep discussion. And as both the Latin as well as Persian sources from the period describe, these were indeed deep exchanges, even if they were ones that were by far from easy in trying to communicate across cultures the deeper theological and spiritual meanings of these different religions that were being brought together at Akbar's court. Joining me in this conversation is Said Ali Nadim Rizvi, who is Professor of History and former Chairman of the Centre of Advanced Study and the Department of History at Aligarh Muslim University in India. He's the author, among many other works, of the book Fatipur Sikli Revisited, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2013. Hello, Nadim. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Thank you. So today we're actually going to be discussing the original Akbar's Chamber, the Ibadat Khana, founded by the Mughal Emperor Akbar. So I suppose I should start out by asking you, who was the Emperor Akbar? Uh, you know, it's a very good question which you have asked because uh, although most of the people have heard this name, but they actually uh, do not get the real import of who he was. Uh, he was, of course, a Mughal emperor, uh, the third of the Mughals uh, who ruled over uh, the country, uh, Hindustan, India, the subcontinent today, which comprises of uh, uh, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, uh, portions of uh, Afghanistan. Uh, that was the extent. I mean, there were uh, supposed to be at least five modern countries which were part of his empire. But more important than that, Akbar was a person who, just like Ashoka, came up with the policy of Sulhekul, peace with all. And whatever we are today, whatever constitution of India we have today, it owes a lot to this man. And that is why I say that Akbar was not only a Mughal emperor, but a man who gave us this idea that we should all live together. Well, it's a wonderfully evocative opening, Nadim, that mentioning this Persian term, isn't it? It's totally called the peace to all. That was, in a sense, the, the, the brand, the essence, the name of, of his policy. And we'll be exploring as we go on the, the real intellectual content and perhaps, in, in a sense, the, the spiritual content, the theological content at the, at the heart of, of that doctrine. But he was, as you've already mentioned, I mean, rather like Ashoka, the ancient Indian emperor who was a Buddhist emperor as well, but as both religious men, they were also great conquerors. And Akbar lived, lived up to his name, didn't he? Akbar the greatest by conquering so much of that region that you've outlined in the... He, he reigned, didn't he, from 1556 to 1605, if you want to plug him down in dates. And, uh, and in many ways, he is the greatest of the Mughal emperors in the terms of being a conqueror as well, isn't he? He conquered so much of... Conquered Gujarat... Bengal, Kashmir. Almost the whole of this, uh, almost the whole of the subcontinent was conquered by him, and he was not. As I said, that he was not only one of the greatest conquerors. In fact, a better conqueror than Aurangzeb himself. Uh, but uh, uh, as I said, that more important uh, was his philosophical approach to everything. 
I mean, the person who gave the real administration to the country. I mean, uh, the way he organized the country into various subas, uh, the way he organized uh, the justice system, the way he organized the, uh, how the citizens were to be treated, that makes him into a distinct emperor after all. Though we are talking about a pre-modern time when there was no democracy, I mean, these concepts which we have today, 20th century or 21st century, they do not apply to the period of Akbar. So when you say that he was a religious man, the connotation of the term religious is very different for him uh, as compared to if he would use the same term for a person who is sitting during the 21st century. Religious to him only meant that he believed in the supremacy of God. And that was all. Uh, apart from that, uh, he appears to be a man uh, who would uh, believe that there is one God and all the creations on this earth uh, created by that God are in fact uh, also part of the same Godhood and thus should be treated in a very equivalent way. So, uh, 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 you know, today, when you talk about someone being a religious person, you mean that he would be discriminating against uh, a person who is of a different religion. That is not true for Akbar. And that is why I say that uh, for to understand Akbar or to understand his time, you have to import yourself to the 16th, 17th centuries. And please do not look to him from the 21st century perspectives. That, that's very helpful, isn't it? And, and that helps him to situate him in his time, as you said, and also, if you've hinted, in his place of, a, of an empire of an India that has so many different religions. We talk about Hinduism nowadays in the 21st century, but there are many Hindu religions, as well as the various versions of Islam and the many other religions that we'll see were part of his empire. And indeed, the, his own religious attitudes and indeed his religious policies really kind of fitted with, with, that, with that pluralism and we might even say that universalism. And the place where that comes alive, of course, is in the Ibadat Khana. Literally, the, the word means a house of worship. It's a religious debating chamber or, or you'll tell us what it was. But perhaps you can set the scene for us, first of all, because it was indeed, if nothing else, it was a building uh, as, as well as a, actually it's a metaphorical space. So perhaps you can set the scene for us, Nadim, by by describing the Ibadat Khana and its surroundings in Akbar's capital city of Fatipur Sikri. Uh, you know, there are two aspects to the term Ibadat Khana. One uh, is a physical building, uh, which we start getting from the period of Akbar. Uh, but then on the other hand, Ibadat Khana uh, is something uh, which is more abstract uh, than material. Uh, the concept of Ibadat Khana does not start with Akbar himself, but uh, predates him. Uh, we know that uh, uh, the term has been used earlier as well, uh, because uh, we find that uh, uh, any place, Ibadat Khana would simply mean any place, as you rightly pointed out in your introduction, any place where you remember God and you remember his message. So uh, if you are sitting on a slab of stone and thinking about God, 
that also turns into an Imadat Khan. Abul Fazl gives us an example that uh, prior to the building which was constructed, His Majesty would sit on a wild stone in the wilderness, a big stone slab, and would meditate. And he used that particular place as the place where he would commune with God. And he was looking for certain answers. So in a way, Ibadat Khana as a concept means a place where you start talking about spiritualism or things related with God. Uh, so as a concept, this uh, particular thing was there. It predates the actual building, uh, which uh, came up around 1575. It was in 1575 that we are informed by both Abul Fazal and by Abdul Qadir Badayuni. Abul Fazal, incidentally, uh, is the official historian uh, of Akbar's court. The man who praises Akbar even when he's at fault. So if you read Abul Fazal, there is nothing but uh, a mighty emperor. On the other hand, Abdul Qadir Badayuni is a contemporary of uh, Abul Fazal. Both of join, uh, them joined Akbar's court the same year, the same date together. But uh, Abdul Qadir Badayuni was uh, a mullah. He was mullah Abdul Qadir Badayuni and he could not rise very high in the esteem of the emperor. So uh, he wrote an account uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, anti-Akbar and an account uh, where he is very, very critical about Akbar. So he is uh, totally opposite to what Abul Fazal is. Uh, but what I am trying to say is that if you read both uh, Abul Fazal and Abdul Qadir Badayuni, almost the same type of information is got regarding this particular, uh, you know, space, which was known as Ibadat Khana. Both of them tell us that uh, uh, the emperor, his majesty, decided to establish a building, found a building, where all type of scholars would get together during Thursday nights. And they would uh, hold certain discussions. One thing which uh, both of them, and even there is another uh, source, primary source for this period, Arif Pandhari. He is also one of the historians of Akbar's period. He has left behind a book which is known as Tarikh-e-Kandhari or Tarikh-e-Akbari. Uh, it's a very short account. It doesn't give the details as Abul Fazal de uh, does or as Badayuni does. But he also mentions the establishment of uh, a building known as Ibadat Khana at Fatehpur Sikri. Uh, now, when this uh, 15, in, in 1585, uh, well, 1575, this building was constructed in 1575, around 1575, uh, Akbar, just like uh, in the previous eras, or previous, uh, you know, kings, uh, for example, the other Timurids uh, who are mentioned to have held such, certain such meetings, he opened the doors only to the scholars of the Muslim faith. 
you know, we have evidence of uh, such religious discussions going on prior to Akbar. But uh, they are all uh, 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 inter-religious. Uh, they are confined, these discussions are confined only, only to Islam. And thus, when Akbar starts initially, after building uh, this structure, which is known as Ibadat Khana, only the Muslim theologians were allowed and the emperor himself would preside and a discussion on one or the other religious issue would take place. Uh, how far uh, practicing something is allowed in Islam or not allowed in Islam. That is how uh, these meetings at Ibadat Khana started. And slowly and gradually, Akbar then directed that uh, other complex topics may be taken up for discussion. Social issues, issues like uh, remarriage, issues like widow marriage, issues uh, like slavery. All those things were also brought up in, uh, during the course of the Ibadat Khana discussions. From whatever evidence we get from our primary sources, by primary sources, I mean those sources which were written, compiled, composed during the same period when these incidents were happening. So they, they were closer in time and space, and that is why we have to rely, we can rely on them. So these primary sources tell us that after instituting a proper physical place known as Ibadat Khana within the complex of Fatehpur Sikri, after a year or so, something happened that these discussions briefly came to an end. Why they came actually to an end? Or uh, are they not being reported properly? We are not sure. But we find that uh, within a year or two, from uh, probably by 1576-77, there was a gap in the holding because these Ibadat Khana discussions, so-called Ibadat Khana discussions, were being held on a weekly basis. And sometimes these discussions would carry on for the whole night. Uh, they would, uh, the emperor would sit after, you know, uh, his uh, dinner uh, in this particular building on a Thursday evening, and they would get up only the early morning of Friday, and the whole night the discussion would be going on. We have, uh, uh, you know, a reference in one of the sources where uh, Abdullah Abdul Qadir Badaini, if I'm not wrong, says uh, that while we were carrying on the discussion. Uh, the emperor's eyes were closed and we thought that he is going to sleep and he's not listening to us. So we getting, uh, we started getting uh, relaxed and uh, certain other things started to be discussed and suddenly the his majesty opened his eyes and we realized he's not sleeping, he's pretending. It was late in the night. So, I mean, the, uh, he would keep an eye. Another uh, authority uh, tells us that while these discussions were going on, Akbar would be taking a round of all the groups who are sitting there and listening 
to what type of discussions are going on. So this was the vibrancy when it all started. But somehow, after a year or so, some slackness had come, and uh, we find that uh, possibly, possibly, uh, they were uh, these discussions uh, started not taking place. But then there was an impetus which was given in 1578. In 1578, once again, the very robust uh, discussions started taking place. Uh, within the ibadat khana uh, premises and this time with a difference we'll turn to those subsequent discussions in a, in a, in a moment nadim and you've really evoked to us wonderfully the the flavor the, the detail the the setting the environment of these nighttime majalis isn't it these nighttime meetings and not least one of the the major parts of your work and indeed your your book fatipur sikri revisited has 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 explored the the architectural setting as well because the city Fatipur Sikri that that Akbar founded as one of his several capitals in 1569 is an extraordinarily beautiful place, isn't it? With its great, extraordinarily large Bulandarvaza, isn't it? As I recall, recall the great marble and, and sandstone gateway. Then in the centre, the the shrine, the Darga, the Sufi shrine of Selim Chishti, who was Akbar's Sufi master, after whom he indeed named his son, Salim, who later became Jahangir. And I remember on my own visits, on the several times I've been to Fatipur Sikri, the, that shrine still has many Muslim and, and Hindu, and presumably Indian Christian pilgrims as well. So Fatipur Sikri somehow continued to be a multi-religious place, even not necessarily in the building of the Ibadat Khana, that in your work, in your detective work, you're actually trying to establish which of the, the possible surviving buildings the Ibadat Khana was. But ultimately, of course, today we're interested in, in the discussions that went on in that building, in that imperial capital. So in this second phase of the, of the discussions then, the conversations in the Ibadat Khana that you were, you were about to mention, perhaps you can tell us what we know of the, the topics and themes that were discussed there, and indeed perhaps the different people, Muslim and non-Muslim, who, who came to the Ibadat Khana in this second phase of its history. You know, before I uh, start uh, uh, answering the actual question, uh, let me also say that, uh, uh, you know, the uh, physical uh, existence of this building has been, as you rightly pointed out, uh, under debate since a uh, very long time, uh, during the 18th century, uh, uh, from 18th century down to my book, uh, around seven or eight locations have tried to be put forward that this is the Ibadat Khana. So I also contributed my own and uh, I gave this view uh, that no, no, all of them were wrong and this actually, which I have identified is the real one. No one is sure. It's only Akbar who, if he comes out of his grave, would be able to tell us. All of us are just at, uh, basing ourselves on the interpretation of the primary source material. And I uh, personally believe that a building which now is known as uh, the Karkhanas, uh, the, 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 the Daftar Khana, the records office, was possibly because it has the oriel windows, a space for the people, uh, its location, 
tallies with what abul fazal has given what uh, badaini has given so on the basis of that but uh, you know uh, there might be a time when some other scholar would come and then puncture holes uh, into what i have said and would point out at some other place so as far as the physical remains are concerned for the time being uh, i am uh, sure until someone uh, contradicts me with other sources that this was not the building but well, as i i'm convinced anyway by by by, by your work with him and and i'm uh, sure our listeners will be as well perhaps so you can because dibadat khan as its name suggests that the house of worship it's not a mosque it's not a, a masjid it's a different type of building so so perhaps you can actually briefly describe for us the 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 daftar khana or the ibadat khana what that building looks like uh you know uh, what we get references that uh, there were four ayvans four big halls uh which comprise the uh khana ibadat khana the uh, house of uh, the ibadat khana and uh, they were on four different directions it was uh, in fact uh, a four quartered building in uh, uh, on the four directions there were different uh, places for uh, the different type of people to sit uh for example on one side there would be christians sitting on the other uh, side the brahmans would be sitting on the third side uh the uh, sunni ulama would be sitting and so on and so forth sometimes uh in the sitting arrangement on one side there would be uh, the the nobility which would be there uh, the poets would be on the other hand the theologians on the third side and so on and so forth so there were uh, whatever descriptions we get from from arif kandari from abul fazal uh, from um, uh, badayuni uh, all these tell us that it was a pretty big structure uh, with at least four big uh, spaces for different type of people to sit and in between there was a place for the emperor where he would be sitting and presiding over all this it was not a very small structure at all and uh, 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 we also have an evidence that once there was uh, a jogi uh, he was known as uh, devi devi uh, prasad uh, devi das uh, who was uh, a mendicant uh, uh, a hindu uh, who uh, was uh, called to the court uh, by akbar to discuss things with him so he was also one night in discussion with akbar uh, poor guy because he was very old he could not climb up the hill to the palace so he was made to sit on a charpoy uh, you know charpoy would mean uh, um, uh, a sort of a, a wooden uh, you know uh, 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 it's a wooden contraption yeah on which people sleep uh, so, uh, which is woven with ropes and wood uh, so on that he was made to sit and that uh, was pulled up to the jharoka window uh, where the emperor was sitting and so suspended the whole night uh, they were uh, in discussion with each other uh, devi and uh, akbar now all these discussions fit up at the place which is now known as records office because there is a very elaborate jharoka within uh, the building there is a very big hall with you know a very beautiful uh you know uh, uh sculptures on um, um floral designs carved on the pillars brackets such beautiful pillars as found in this building are only found in the 
in those buildings at Fatehpur Sikri, which are uh, associated uh, with the emperor directly. So this is an imperial building. It cannot be a building where the petty clerks would be sitting. And then all around, there is open spaces where people can sit. You know that during the Mughal period, the concept as against Europe was not of big halls, uh, covered spaces, because our climate uh, dictated that there should be open uh, courtyards and spaces on which uh, you know temporary awnings would be placed, and that is how we would uh, they would be sitting. So that uh, on the basis of that, I have identified this particular structure as the structure of the Ibadat Khana, where those discussions were taking place. And there we have then in the middle, as if you mentioned, this, this Jaroka, as it were, sort of a, a royal viewing platform or a sort right. of little balcony, I suppose, a very elaborate balcony where the emperor would sit presiding over these, these discussions. And, and it was a real important element for Akbar that these, I've used the word discussions, and perhaps that's a little neutral. They were debates in which the intellect, Akl, or indeed Mantek, as it will be called in Persian and Arabic, the, the logic was very, very important part of, of reason, wasn't it, over tradition. So there was a real sort of intellectual element of, of, of these debates, as, as his own impresario and, and historian Abel Fazl had said, that the, the idea was to, to establish a feast of truth. So perhaps you can give us a, more of a sense then of, of uh, the topics and themes that were going on, particularly among the inter-religious debates, among whether with yogis or indeed the, the Jesuit Catholics who, who turned up to Fatipur Sikri and, and later to Agra. Uh, I'm sorry that you had asked this question earlier as well, and uh, I had taken you at some other place. Uh, thank you for bringing back to this question of what were the topics which were under discussion. Uh, sometimes the talk, topics, as you in this question hinted, were very philosophical and very, I mean, uh, something which only the learned scholars could discuss. Uh, the questions of mantak, the questions of logic. Uh, uh, we know that Akbar and his age is, no, is known for rationalism. Uh, he would, uh, you know, emphasize, uh, give emphasis on aql on reason. And that is why we find that a large number of topics which were discuss being discussed in the Ibadat Khana were based on reason. Uh, sometimes such questions were also very mundane. Do dealing with uh, issues which were of social importance. Sometimes uh, uh, the issues were as simple as why do uh, Shia's pray with open hands and why do Sunnis have their hands folded? Such discussions would also take place. But then on the other hand, uh, there would be discussions of, you know, once Akbar, uh, I'll give you one example and then you can understand through that, started uh, asking the question, uh, if there is one God, then why uh, a person, a man, is allowed to marry more than one times. You know, a woman, a beloved, uh, you can fall only once in love with someone. 
it is not possible to love more than one per person simultaneously so is it not the fact that as there is one god there should be only one woman in your life there should not be more than one wife and and a full discussion started on that and then then this uh, discussion went on how many wives are allowed in islam and why is it that christians among the christians only one wife is allowed so is it not better than what muslims are doing and this discussion kept on going and uh, the the uh, poor theologians uh, were hard pressed i mean they, they were making a fool of themselves one of them in order to please the emperor because he knew that the emperor had married more than one times in fact he was he had married a number of wives around 11 or so so he said sir actually the quran gives you permission to marry uh one by one two by two three by three four by four and you then multiply all of them together so there is enough space for you to marry once again akbar was so angry with this man that he had him thrown out of the court he he was banished in fact these ibadat khana discussions showed akbar how the theologians were trying to please him and befool him and that is why after these discussions akbar liberated himself from the theology of those uh, theologians in fact as i said that from 1578 onwards the ibadat khana discussions were uh, which were taking place uh, here at fatehpur sikri uh, they were opened to all type of people they were opened not only uh, among the uh, hanafi shafi's malikis and so on and so forth the uh, sunni uh, you know uh, groups sects but also to the fiqh jafari the shias not only uh, the muslims in themselves all variety of muslims heretics or non heretics but also along with them uh, the so called hindus remember one thing that during akbar's period the term hindu is not confined to a particular religion at all as it is today so we hear of sevras the jain monks we hear of jogis we hear of brahmans we hear of you know all type of uh, you know zoroastrians we hear of uh, you know sufis we hear of all type of people but the term there are two terms which are uh, not found mentioned one hindu because hindu was never used uh, uh, as a term for a particular religious community and secondly no mention of the uh, group of religious group known as buddhists today uh, because probably by this time in akbar's court uh, or in north india uh, there were no buddhists who remained they were now all uh, had been scattered to central asia so we do not find uh the term uh, you know uh, buddhist among those who uh, were taking part in the ibadat khana discussions now in the, in the ibadat khana discussions questions of trinity were taken up brahma vishnu mahesh that was discussed uh the uh, discussion uh, went on uh, as i said uh, to themes like whether widows should be allowed to be married or not uh social issues like what slavery is who is a banda uh, that was brought about uh, uh discussions of what actually one means by religion they were discussed 
you know, as you rightly pointed out in your question, that Abul Fazal, while uh, mentioning these discussions, says that the Ibadat Khana discussions were festivities of truth. In one of the earlier versions of the Akbar, you know, Akbar Nama was revised again and again. I mean, a text would be prepared, it would be presented before the emperor and emperor would then suggest changes and Abul Fazal would uh, redraft it. As like you and me who uh, draft an article or a book, we have revisions which are done. So these recensions, some of them still survive. So one of the earlier recensions, which is now at British Library uh, of the Akbar Nama, uh, there is much more detail of why Ibadat Khana discussion was taking place. And here he says that I am, uh, or his majesty, in fact, is Abul Fazal who's saying, his majesty instituted Ibadat Khana discussions, not only for finding out the truth, but also making aware the Muslims who they are and the, um, and the Hindus who they, who they are, the indigenous people who they are. All of them should realize the basics of their religion because until and unless they realize the basics of their religion, they cannot understand each other. That actually was the purpose. That's really fascinating, isn't it? Because that fits in with, with what we know is going on more broadly in, in Akbar's court. And indeed, more broadly in, in the Mughal Empire and in, in subsequent generations, which is particularly through the, the shared learned language of Persian, as it were, the kind of the, the Latin of Mughal India that people of various religious backgrounds and so on would learn. In fact, many Hindus became, became adepts in writing Persian, didn't they? And in fact, many, many of the great adjudicators of literary Persian were were, well, Hindus, even though, as you said, the term wouldn't be used for them at that time. They were, I suppose they'd have been called Kayasts, wouldn't they? Those particular ones. And we have at Akbar's court various translations, don't we, of, of part of the Mahabharata, uh, of the great, as we'd say now, Hindu Sanskrit epics. And, and later, a few generations later, with Dada Shakur, the Mughal prince and almost emperor, he has a translation made of the ancient Sanskrit Upanishads, the great mystical texts that, that were... Um, sort of more or less from the same period as, as the Buddha, which were translated again into Persian. And, uh, and I believe that's how they found their way to, to Europe, actually, and then to Latin in that way. So there were these interactions that are going on. And as you said, that there's a sort of different level. Some are perhaps more philosophically complex than others. Some are perhaps in, I don't know, perhaps you can tell us, maybe in spoken Hindustani, others perhaps in more learned Persian. But there's also the other presence of the Jesuit Christians there who were themselves trying to learn to cope to speak in, in Persian. Uh, and the figures I have in mind are another trio, not a, a divine trio this time, but at least a Jesuitical trio of the famous Father Antonio Montserrat, the Catalan, Rodolfo Acquaviva, the Italian, and the fascinating figure of Francois Enrique, who, despite his French-sounding name, was an Iranian convert to Catholicism from Hormuz in Iran. So these figures are at the court as well. And perhaps you can give us a sense of how these foreign Jesuits, whether 
Catalan or indeed Iranian, how they're interacting there with with uh, the discussions at the court? Uh, well, uh, from your uh, way in which you have uh, asked the question, uh, uh, remind me if I forget one of those things which you have asked. Uh, one is about the translations uh, which were taking place and the other, the role of the Jesuits. Let me start uh, with the fact uh, about the translations. Uh, you know, uh, when from 1578 down to 1580, discussions between various religious groups, uh, including the Jesuits, which I would come later on, uh, was taking place. Uh, and uh, uh, all these discussions were aimed at festivities of truth to find out the ultimate truth, the real truth, the Haq, what is the Haq, the truth with a capital T. And uh, that was the aim uh, which Akbar had started with. So when all these discussions were taking place, Akbar realized how little does the Hindus, the Brahmins know about Islam? How little do the theologians like Abdul Qadir Badayuni and others know about Hinduism and so on and so forth? So one of the major, you know, uh, uh, thing which happened was the launching of the translation project. It was one of the effects of the Ibadat Khana discussions that Akbar decided that in order, you know, from 1578 down to 1580, Akbar realized that in a place like India, nothing would work except sulhe kul, absolute peace within all. You know, very long back during the 14th century, Zia Barni, another very famous historian of India, Tariq Feroz Shahi, had written during the period of Alauddin Khilji that you cannot rule this country only on the basis of Shariat, but to administer this country, Hindustan, you need Zawabit, secular laws. That is what uh, Tariq Feroz Shahi had written during the 14th century. Now, Akbar, during the, these discussions, realized that unless all these people know something about each other, there cannot be peace. And, and how do you come to know each other? Not only by meeting each other and embracing each other physically, because uh, physical association would give you only uh, a semblance of unity, not more than that, because in your hearts, you would be carrying the prejudices. To do away with the prejudices, what is needed is the understanding of the texts which had been written by each tradition. And, and that, that's really crucial, isn't it, Nadine? Because I think that that attempt to not just live side by side in an empire or in any society, the the aim really of... of the Ibadat Khana, as indeed I would say of this Akbar's chamber, to say it's not enough just to live side by side. We need to understand one another. Exactly. And that requires perhaps some degree of effort, whether translating the Mahabharata into Persian or, or whatever it, it might be. But please go on. You know, uh, you know what is interesting in this all is that uh, not only religious texts were translated, it's not only Ramayana and Mahabharata, but the texts which are of literature, dramas written in Sanskrit, 
uh, texts of arithmetic, texts of sciences, they were translated. So it is not only the religious texts which were being translated, all type of texts. So this is important point number one. Whenever we talk about translation projects of uh, you know the Mughals, we talk about Ramayana and Mahabharata, and then we come to the Upanishads of Darashiko. Mm -hmm. But the project of uh, you know Akbar was that yes, these religious texts were important. In fact, what is Ramayana and Mahabharata? They are epic stories. They are epics. So, but along with them. Uh, the, 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 uh, there were other Sanskrit dramas which were translated. Uh, texts which are pure and pure mathematics and arithmetic, they were translated. So all these translations took place. So this was by a, uh, important point number one. A takeaway from what Ibadat Khana was, it was a direct result of Ibadat Khana. Second is that, you know, a person like Bulla Abdul Qadir Badayuni, a very strict uh, you know, the theologian who hates the uh, non-Muslims like anything. You know, whenever a non-Muslim noble would die, if he is a so-called Hindu, if you call him a Hindu in today's language, he would say a dog has died. And similarly, I mean, these, these are the hemistitions which he would compose to give the date of his death. So the dates of the death of a Hindu or a Shia uh, would be scandalous as far as Badayuni was concerned. He was a rapidly, I mean, a person who would uh, uh, actually hate Hindus and Rajputs and uh, Shias and so on and so forth. But the task of translating these epics, one of these epics, was given to Mullah Abdul Qadir Badayuni by Akbar. Knowing that he is a person who hates these traditions, he was given the charge, you go and translate. And the poor Mullah writes in his work, oh my God, what type of work have I to do? But then it was the order of the emperor, he translated them. And there is a second work which he has written, Mullah Abdul Qadir Badaini has left behind, where uh, he appears that it appears that he's not such an insolent human being as he appears to be in Muntakhabud Tawarikh. Probably some of these stories rubbed off him. So uh, in his own Nijatul Rashid, he is much more compromised. Uh, he is much more, uh, you know, accepting of the Shias and the Hindus and so on and so forth. So that is one thing which I would like to say. As far as the Jesuit fathers were concerned, uh, they pretty much were part of the Ibadat Khana discussion from 1578 onwards. Possibly, I think that uh, the impetus to the Ibadat Khana discussion, once again, to become so robust, was the presence of the Jesuit priests. Now, people like Father Monzeret, they keep on writing letters and they were very hopeful that the emperor would one day be you know, converted to Christianity. They had come to the court of Akbar in the hope of not only getting concessions uh, for the Portuguese trade, but also converting uh, the Mughal emperors into Christians. They keep, they keep on, I mean, if you read their letters and so on and so forth, that uh, we have converted the prince Daniel, one of the sons of uh, Akbar. Then they, they keep on writing letters. For example, Monzeret's letters are there. Very soon you will get the news that Akbar himself has converted. But then 
at the end of it when he is almost closing his discussions of what is happening he says that this particular man is negating every religion and by negating every uh, by uh, you know in fact by accepting the truths of all he is in fact religion is uh, contradicting religion itself this is what father manzarich writes so by the time that they left around 1585 he was a disillusioned man the type of discussions he brought in the uh, ibadat khana discussions he introduced some of the stories of bible some of the concepts of christianity uh, uh, and those things were discussed the mullahs were given a chance uh, and a very important point is and uh, that akbar gave them the full liberty to discuss and criticize the islamic concepts like anything we are told that the theologians were up in arms they were expecting the emperor to punish father monzerit and his companions how dare they speak such things about our prophet about our faith but emperor would give them the equal chance in fact not only that he gave them the equal chance but very near to where ibadat khana was placed akbar also allotted residence to father monzerit and company and there in that residence he allowed them to build the first chapel at fatehpur sikri they were allowed to practice their religion not only allowed but one sunday when they were holding a religious mass out there akbar himself appeared and took part in that mass which was being recently we have excavated that particular structure it was an old building of khushbu khana royal perfumery it is just uh, you know it it joins the palace complex itself so within very uh, near the palace within the palace you can say that a chapel also arose uh, for those priests who were staying there and taking part in the ibadat khana discussions these uh, i mean uh, as i said that monzerit points out that nothing happened he is not uh, changing his religion but what actually happened was that akbar was able to learn much about the semitic religions and uh, he exposed the strict theologians uh, to the views of christianity to the views of the jesuits to the views of judaism to the views of buddha of uh, jains Uh, to the brahmanical concepts and all of them uh, uh, were exposed to each other and akbar ultimately decided that the good points of all the religions must be brought under practice and that is why he gave up eating beef he banished that there would be no uh, you know cow meat which would be supplied within the parts of his empire uh, he he gave orders that on certain days of the month uh, the meat would not be eaten uh, a concession to the non vegetarian policy of the non muslims so all these uh, things resulted uh, in fact uh, some people point out that akbar started paying obeisances to jesus and mary because of the influence of the jesuits probably akbar was a very intelligent man he may have invoked jesus and mary before the uh, father monzerit and others but the fact remains that even within the quran there are a number of verses praising 
prophet Isa uh, uh, and Maryam. And so uh, uh, Akbar, while invoking both Jesus and Mary, uh, was within the precincts of Islam. He didn't go out of it. So, I mean, uh, ho, he may have used these, you know, icons to, to, uh, to uh, you know, attract the Jesuits towards himself, to befool them that he was possibly going to convert. The fact is that Akbar uh, never left Islam. Uh, Akbar was never a blind follower of Islam. Uh, Akbar never became a Hindu. Akbar never became a Muslim. Akbar just uh, himself became a good human and wanted others, people who followed him, that they should also become pe persons who would be uh, following the good points of all the religions which were around them. That's really fascinating. And, and particularly, as you've already mentioned, the, the foundings of the the first Catholic church is there within India. Of course, India has its very, very ancient from St. Thomas the Apostle, the South Indian Christian presence, but the arrival then of these Jesuits. And, and, and as you said, to, to be at the receiving end of a Jesuit critique, well, well, I must say, I wouldn't enjoy that. These were the intellectual elite of the Catholic church who'd been founded precisely to be able to intellectually outwit the, 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 the Protestants who are emerging in the 16th century. So, they have been chosen specifically, these three men and their subsequent successor at the at Akbar's court, Geronimo uh, Xavier, there because of their, their real intellectual acumen. And as you've mentioned, I mean, in this context then of, of this translation program of, of Hindu to Muslim texts and vice versa, whether literary or religious texts, there's also the translations then of, of Christian works that, that this later... Jesuit, I mentioned, who I think came to the court of Akbar in, in 1595, if, 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 if I'm correct. He, with a, a local courtier of, of Akbar, has a translation made of what's called in Persian, at least the Dastani Masih, the stories of Jesus. And of course, these aren't the Quranic stories of Jesus or Isa, as you've already mentioned, the Quranic Jesus, but this is the, the Catholic view of Jesus. And this is an extremely long text that's translated into Persian, isn't it? And, and of course, this isn't just this brilliant Jesuitical mind, Xavier uh, himself. He seems to be working with, with a figure, perhaps Abdesatul Lahori, who you might tell us more about, or certainly a, a helper from, from, the, from the Indian and the, the Muslim side, in fact. Uh, in, in fact, I know this uh, process of uh, uh, getting into contact with the Christian theology getting exposed to the texts which had been written about uh, the Christian concepts of uh, Jesus and Mary. Dastane uh, Masih, as you point out, is not the only text. There were other uh, endeavors as well. And we find uh, that uh, soon after Akbar, when Jahangir uh, ascends the throne, uh, such interactions grew le by leaps and bounds. Uh, we now have uh, texts like Miratul Quds, which was written. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, by Jahangir's time, uh, the, the palaces of the Mughals were also liberally I mean, painted uh, with figurines of Jesus and Mary, uh, with uh, you know, just, uh, 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 cherubims, angelic uh, depictions, and even the image of God himself uh, derived from the Christian tradition. So yes, there were many, uh, you know, and all these things, uh, uh, let me assure you, 
uh, uh, were used and uh, by the Mughals, but none of them ever, uh, you know, became Christians themselves. They were used by them for their own particular purpose, uh, for the purpose of uh, deriving concessions from uh, these merchants uh, who were coming to the court. Uh, these merchants were thinking of getting concessions for, from themselves. The Mughals were using them for their own purpose. But as you said, that uh, uh, by the time uh, when Akbar left uh, this world, uh, when by the time that Jahangir comes to the throne, uh, the things started happening much more faster. The account of Abdul Sattar, uh, Majali Se Jahangiri, uh, also is an account of similar discussions as the Ibadat Khana discussions under Akbar. In fact, they are also Ibadat Khana discussions. Yes, this is uh, the longest chamber, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, because, I, I'll, I'll give you an example of that. You know, in 1602, at a time uh, when uh, there was some uh, difference between uh, Akbar and Jahangir, Prince Salim, at a time when Fatehpur Sikri had been abandoned, uh, in 1585, Akbar left Fatehpur Sikri forever, never to return back to it. First, he went towards Lahore, and from Lahore, he went uh, back to Agra Fort, where he was living. Now, in 1602, uh, uh, Prince Salim, uh, the, the rebellious son of, uh, you know, uh, I, I remember that in 1602, Salim also had Abul Fazal murdered. Uh, so he, he is a person now um, uh, fighting his father. Uh, and the father and uh, uh, the son do not uh, share a very good uh, compatible relations. But Salim return, uh, returns to the court and uh, wants uh, that he should go and visit uh, the palace complex, beat his mother and so on and so forth. Uh, the emperor refuses. He says that I have come to know that uh, you uh, drink a lot and you misbehave. So you are not going to be allowed to go into the haram, the palace complex. And orders that for around 10 days, he doesn't specify the time. He says until Salim reforms himself, he should be lodged in the structure of the Ibadat Khana. Now, that means that as late as 1602, in the Agra fort, not at Fatehpur Sikri, where the building of Ibadat Khana, as we know, exists. Now I'm talking about Agra fort. Here too, there was a building which was known as Ibadat Khana. And it was such a building where Jahangir as Prince Salim uh, lived for around 10 days and he resided there. And from Jahangir's own period, from Abdul Sattar Jafri, we come to know that those discussions which used to take place in such religious gatherings were taking place. So it was a continuity. <laughs> So as you've explained then, Nadim, that the Ibadat Khan, Akbar's chamber, doesn't end with Akbar. It, it continues, and indeed in many ways there's conversations, those inter-religious dialogues expand under the reign of his son, his wayward son for a while, and successor, Jahangir. But leaping forward in time to the present day, as we close, perhaps you can tell us what is the legacy of the Ibadat Khan in India today?
coming to the present time uh, the message which akbar left behind is still very very relevant today we need to be reminded of the ibadat khana discussions we need to be reminded of the policy of sulekul because of the time when we are living it appears that each community is at the throat of the other in india at least there is once again a division between communities a division between castes with each uh, religious uh, class living separately from each other well with that inspiring reminder that the importance of akbar's message of sohlikol of peace to all thank you professor nadim rizvi for speaking to us in akbar's chamber thank you thank you thank you thank you Thank you. Thank you.